Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my lovely betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here with your fair dues warning to prevent your delicate ears from being exposed to anything untoward and shocking. So fair dues, everybody. We are talking about Alexander the Great today, in particular, his sex life. So we will be veering into some particularly naughty and risque territory. And that might not just be for you. And if that's the case, sit this one out and I will see you next time. Imagine being called the Great. I'd be Kate the Great. Hmm. Talk about pressure. Well, Alexander the Great wasn't exactly called that for his prowess in the bedroom, but it did get me thinking. What kind of sex life would the King of Macedon have? Well, today, betwixt the sheets, we are going to find out. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. And welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Today, I am speaking to the host of our sister podcast, The Ancients, Tristan Hughes, about Alexander the Great, his daddy, and his sex life. Did Alexander really have a 13-day sex marathon? Did he really have relationships with both men and women? And was he really that great, Betwixt the Sheets? So hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only flipping Tristan Hughes. How are you? Oh, hello, Kate. Long time coming and I'm so looking forward to this. I'm very well and it's lovely to, well, lovely to talk all things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. I am so excited to have you here as the host of my, I want to say sister podcast. I'm very happy. I'm very happy either way. We can call it a sister podcast. I, I'm going to make you a podcaster girl. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a sister podcast, The Ancients. <laughs> Congratulations, it's a girl. <laughs> but we're not talking about a girl today, although we'll definitely be talking about some girls. We are talking about the one and only Alexander the Great. We are indeed. Are you a bit of a fanboy? Uh, oh, I wouldn't, you know, I've... Is that too far? My life is, in ancient history terms, obviously centred around his death and what happened following his death, the chaos that was the successor wars and all of that. I find that so extraordinary. And, you know, the legacy of this figure is seismic and what he did during his life. And then this mythical afterlife of Alexander that emerges, mm. you know, these fantastical stories of Alexander became medieval bestsellers, like Arthurian tales later won 
There's stories where he goes to the bottom of the ocean in a submarine and goes flying in an ancient <laughs> flying contraption in another one of these romances. It's great. Um, but of course, very flawed character as well. You know, was he great? Was he not? Genocidal maniac on one side, but on the other hand, he said his legacy arguably you can still see today. So it's only right that we talk about him in today's podcast. Did he call himself the Great? Was he known that in his lifetime? Did he just introduce himself as, hi, I'm Alexander, Alexander the Great? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that comes later, but I couldn't tell you exactly when it comes. It's very interesting, though, how it you see some figures in ancient history, particularly after Alexander, who are called the Great in their lifetime, but they're not actually really that great. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awful. Try to introduce yourself at like a, an office party. It's like, hello, I'm Tristan the Great. And everyone kind of going, really? Really? Yeah. Just... <laughs> Hi. Living your own world. That would be awful. Like, I mean, we're talking about his sex life as well. I mean, it'd be awful if you had to try and introduce yourself as, you know, Hi, I'm Kate the Great. And, you know, to a potential lover, that's setting yourself up, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Just like, okay, yep. You've thrown the boat out there. You've thrown down the gauntlet. You've got a lot to live up to. And if it doesn't, you know, your reputation... You know, everyone's just going to be like, well, yeah. It's in tatters. Not really. What was his full name? What would he have introduced himself as? Well, he was the Argaid from the Argaid dynasty, the Argaid line, the royal thing. You know, King Alexander III of Mastodon is, he was the third of his name for the royal Argaid Mastonian line. But I couldn't tell you exactly if there are many epithets that he gave him, but of what you see in the sources, you know, Alexandros the third of his name and so on and so forth. That's still a pretty good title. <laughs> it's st- I mean, if it's not quite great, that's still, that's impressive. He is an absolutely fascinating figure when you look at that. And it's also, when you look at his family too, it's more than just the man, the people that he's surrounded by in his family, whether it's his father, mm. whether it's his warrior-like half-sister, elder half-sister, Kanane, who's just such an incredible character, his full sister Cleopatra, even his half-brother Philip Aradeus and his young son Alexander. He's a man in a family which is full of like incredible personalities. You know, we always kind of focus in on Alexander, but there's so much more to the story of ancient Macedon and his family than just that king. Hmm. And I suppose we should probably start by talking about his dad. Hmm. I suppose it'd be fair to say Alexander the Great had a few daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> in the mix like what kind of world did Alexander grow up in and how did that it's difficult isn't it but like that impacted his sex life but like what was his dad like what was Alexander's childhood like well with so many parts of Alexander's story you almost always have to go back to the story of his dad who is King Philip II of Macedon because he is integral in forming the Macedonian kingdom in forming the Macedonian state that Alexander the Great inherits when Philip is assassinated in 336 BC but Philip II of Macedon he comes to the throne of Macedon in about 359 BC and at that time Macedon is very much on the edges of the Greek world it's on the brink of chaos it's surrounded by enemies like Thracians, Paeonians, Illyrians mm. and what Philip does during his reign through a series of different initiatives is he transforms Macedon almost from this backwater into the dominant power in the central Mediterranean. Oh, well done, Phil. Well done, Phil, indeed. You know, he's normally overlooked compared to Alexander the Great, but I love this sometimes this debate about who was more important, Philip or Alexander. Who was the greater. Exactly. And I think quite a lot of people now going on the side of Philip. But Philip, he had quite a lot of, well, I'm not going to say vices, but things that the ancient sources highlight in the literature which seems to be very much contrasted with Alexander. And one way is, for instance, his his sex life. Philip, he's polygamous. He has several wives during the course of his reign, but they are all as a result of 
Normally at the end of wars, there was a joke that Philip Marriott had a new wife after every war he fought oh. because there was this diplomatic part in his marriages and the fact that it helped him to cement, to increase Macedon's power. So all these various different ways in which he's able to increase Macedon's power, he reforms the army, he revolutionizes the army with like the Macedonian phalanx, this central infantry tactical formation that his Macedonian soldiers center around. New heavy cavalry reforms the logistics train of it all. But another way he does it is through diplomatic marriages. And as mentioned, by the end of his reign, according to the sources, he has some seven marriages. He has several children by different wives. Okay. One of them, of course, is Alexander's mother, Olympias, who has Alexander as her son, but also a daughter called Cleopatra, who's Alexander's only full sister. But there are several others as well. But it's very interesting that in the ancient world, there are only two of his seven wives who are Macedonian. Right. The other five are, one's a Thracian or a member of the Getai royal family. Two are Thessalian. One, Alexander's mother Olympias, is Molossian. I don't even know where Molossia is. Well, it's a funny one because if you type in Molossia today, you'll get that little, I'm not going to call it a kingdom or something, but I think someone's tried to form his own little kind of independent place in the centre of the <laughs> USA. But Molossia is now in northwest Greece. And it's more commonly known as part of Epirus, this ancient region of Epirus, which today covers southern Albania and northwest Greece. But Alexander, he's born into a world where his father, King Philip II, he has several marriages. There is no settled succession in the Macedonian royal family. So even though Alexander, we now think of him as the heir of Philip, there was no guarantee that that was going to happen before Philip's assassination in 338 BC. He has an elder brother. He has sisters as well. Court intrigue, factional strife is rife at the court of Philip II in the Macedonian royal court. And part of that is to do with Philip's sex life. This is like a Jerry Springer nightmare, this is, isn't it? He's, he's got so many wives and so many children. And every time he has a war, he gets a wife at the end of it, like a bizarre trophy or consolation prize in her case so there's loads of kids and, I, and uh, oh, was he faithful to his seven wives oh no absolutely not <laughs> no we definitely know that we know so he married there but it wasn't looked down upon for philip to have courtesans as well but also male lovers too oh male lovers now that's interesting okie doke all right tell me about that so this is interesting with philip the second of macedon with ancient Greek culture and with the Macedonian elite at this time with Philip II, there seems to be very much this from the sources. It's a very prickly topic to talk about. It's a horrid topic, but it's the ancient Greek pederasty, mm. which you do see you know, with Sparta, Athens, and it continues into the late 4th century at the time of Philip II of Macedon in Macedonia. And we get this idea of an older man and a younger adolescent boy who's known as the beloved. And we hear in the sources of Philip II having at least two, potentially three of these figures who we know of by name, potentially more, one of whom is actually involved in his assassination, which occurs in 338 BC. Oh, dear. I mean, there, there are a few examples to highlight. There are two figures called Pausanias who I'll get to, but another figure I find quite interesting. He's only mentioned in one of the sources as being a catamite of Philip II, which is a young man also called Alexander. Not to be confused with Philip's son, Alexander, who we've gone to Alexander III of Macedon, Alexander oh the Great. God. They need to find some new names for a start. Well, the amount of Cleopatras and Alexanders <laughs> and Perdiccases at this time, Kate, is absolutely mad. But in one source, which is Justin, he talks about this other figure called Alexander, who comes to the royal court of Macedon as a hostage. Right. Because Alexander is a member of the Molossian royal family. He's the brother of Olympias, 
who marries Philip. Oh, this is getting very complicated. Right, okay. It's very, yes. You must have had post-it notes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Philip of Macedon trying desperately to work out who he's knobbed the night before, who's related to who, which international incident am I going to... Right, okay, so this is Alexander from... So this is another one, but right. because he's the brother of Olympias, who he marries, who is the mother of Alexander the Great. The one played by Angelina Jolie in the film. The one played by Angelina Jolie in the film, absolutely. Right. But he grows up at the royal court of Macedon and he receives an education there and then he'll later go back and be reinstated as the new king of this kingdom to the southwest of Macedon. But in Justin, he says that Alexander also becomes the beloved of Philip once he's at the royal court of Macedon. It's a quite a fucked up practice, isn't it, really? Um, and by our own standards, it, you can't feel it's anything other than pederasty. But it was very common across the ancient world, this idea that like a young boy would somehow be like apprenticed to an older man who would teach him lots of important things. And it would be a sexual relationship. It seems absolutely bonkers to our modern eyes, doesn't it? But not only was it fine, it was aspirational as well. It really is. And it's a, you, there is examples of it, as we've just mentioned, you know, at the court of Philip II, among the Macedonian elites at that time and down into the time of Alexander the Great too because we know that he had at least one younger male lover who actually wasn't a Macedonian, a Persian eunuch called Bagoas. But as you say, really for our minds today, it's horrible. It's really nasty to think about. But as you say, this was a part of this culture that there was and we have to talk about it, especially if we're talking about Philip at the start here. Yeah. How young are we talking here? Oh, goodness. Well, in the example of Philip, Let's take the case of Pausanias or Alexander. Pausanias, one we're told, is a page at the Macedonian royal court, so almost certainly a teenager. Right. Alexander of Melosia, he's also very much a boy when he comes to the royal court of Macedon, and he's reinstated as the king of Melosia in around 342, 341 BC. So he spends 10, more than 10 years at the court of Philip II of Macedon, and that is during his teenage years too. So I can think we can imagine around that age. They're teenagers. Mm. I've often, do you think that this is because, and this is a sort of a theory that I've got, and I might be really wrong, that this practice arose because there was actually quite a lot of shame in just having a male lover of your age, because there's a something implied in taking the quote-unquote feminine role, that there wasn't as much, if you were what we would now call the top in vernacular, the one doing the penetrating, you were manly and fine, but there's still quite a, there was still quite a lot of shame attached to being sort of the feminine role and this idea of it being a younger man because they aren't past puberty and they aren't you know fully grown men. Does that play into it, or have I just imagined that? I think so. No, I think absolutely because he said the older man, known as like the pursuer of the Orestes, and the younger adolescent boy, like the pursued the Oromenos, mm. and there is very much that idea, as you say, you know, the masculine and the feminine there. But it is very interesting also this idea of actually a male lover. Your age, the prickly topic of Alexander and Hephaestion, greatly debated whether they were lovers or not. But we do, in the story of Alexander the Great, with this conspiracy called the Royal Pages Conspiracy, we have evidence of soldiers, elite Macedonian figures, these pages, basically a young Macedonian officer school for like these teenagers learning to be officers, of them having sexual relations with another young man from the pages that two of them become lovers. We hear about that a few times in this great conspiracy of these. We know certain figures. So that is quite interesting of you there having lovers your same age mm. in a military circle. Right, okay. So we've got this 
very bizarre and convoluted family life that he's got. I mean, Christmas must have been a nightmare in that family. It must have cost everyone a fortune. <laughs> I'm not sure what their equivalent of Christmas would have been back there, but um, Good point. it's very, very interesting because you do see, especially during the reign of Philip II, as mentioned, there is no settled succession. So you see these rival factions emerging at court. You see Olympias, Alexander's mother, playing a prominent role. You have, before the assassination of Philip II, when he marries his seventh and final wife, this woman called Cleopatra, another Cleopatra, who is like from the Macedonian heartlands, Macedonian noble family. They're at the wedding feast where they're celebrating the marriage of Philip to Cleopatra. And Cleopatra's uncle makes a toast. Alexander the Great is there. He is there reclining. He is at the wedding feast. And Attalus, basically, he stands up and he says, may the gods give you brilliant children, you know, legitimate children, to succeed you to the throne of Macedon. And this is evidently, this is a shot at Alexander the Great and the fact that his mother, Olympias, isn't a Macedonian. And Alexander doesn't react well to this. He stands up, you know, there's a shouting match. You know, he's basically accusing Attalus, of accusing him of not being Philip's successor, of not being, you know, a legitimate successor to Philip. It results in him going in exile for a bit. And so you have these various stories around the time just before Philip II is assassinated, which once again emphasises how to those around Philip and potentially to Philip himself, it's not very certain that Alexander is going to be Philip's successor. Okay. It's only clear that that happens after Philip's assassination and Alexander assumes the kingship straight away and then removes potential rivals. Who bumped him off? Do we know that? So who bumped Philip II off? That goes back to the figure of Pausanias, who is another of his male lovers. Right. So the story behind that is Pausanias, according to the sources, he's a royal page. He's a younger man at the court of Macedon. He had been the lover, the beloved of Philip II. But... At a later date, Philip II decides to basically shun Pausanias and take another male lover, also called Pausanias. So that's Pausanias too. Oh, that's just salt in the wound, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it's a really interesting story that you get because Pausanias, you know, he's obviously probably angry with Philip about that. But then at that royal wedding you know, ceremony feast where Attalus derides Alexander to his face in front of Alexander... What also happens that night, according to the sources, is that Attalus instigates a gang rape of Pausanias I, who's already been shunned by Philip, by other elite Macedonian figures at that feast. Oh, that's grim. And Pausanias afterwards, he's a noble Macedonian. He is still actually one of the, he is a leading soldier in Philip's army. He demands justice for how Attalus has treated him, for how these people have treated him at the wedding feast. But Philip, because Attalus is his new bride's uncle, doesn't do anything about it. And so Pausanias, the resentment grows and grows and grows. Potentially, he is working with Olympias, the mother of Alexander the Great, who is also keen to ensure that Alexander is the successor. What happens is that a couple of years later, during this great another marriage ceremony, Philip is entering the theatre at Agai in the heartlands of Macedon. And Pausanias is there. He greets him and he assassinates Philip. Pausanias is killed in the aftermath. But there you go. There's a kind of a, a horrible love story that is attached to the death of Philip II horrifically there. Well, fuck around and find out, Phil. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I feel very sorry for... What was it? Pausanias? Pausanias, yes. Oh. And that's the story that comes over again and again and again in regards to the assassination of Philip II. Now, because Pausanias dies in the aftermath... 
it's always kind of speculated as to who he was helped by in the killing of Philip II. Hence why Olympias's name is sometimes associated. And she would have motive right, okay. because it were to secure Alexander as the successor. But Alexander would also have motive too. So that's why those two names are always associated with potentially aiding Pausanias, with irking him on, with giving him potential support to assassinate Philip II. So his dad gets bumped off and Alexander pretty much just goes, that's mine, the throne's mine. So it's kind of like a coup and then he becomes king. But do we have any idea of what his sex life was like at the time? Obviously not the time he was killing everyone. He'd have been pretty <laughs> preoccupied at that point. How old was he? Well, when Alexander comes to the throne, late. well, he's born in about 356 and Philip II is assassinated in 336. So he's about 20 years old when he comes to the throne. God, he dies at the age bonkers, of 32. I know. I know, just imagine a 20-year-old Tristan or a 20-year-old Kate assuming control of an ancient Holy kingdom. Can you imagine? Shit. So he comes to the throne and, as mentioned, he dies age 32, so only 13 years later. But in that time, you know, when he comes to the throne, one thing of Alexander's sex life is that we don't hear that much of it compared to his other things, compared to, for instance, his military achievements, this obsession with becoming the greatest, idolising his Homeric heroes of old and besting them, idolising demigods like Hercules and getting further in the world, going beyond them, surpassing them. He was engrossed by that. But this doesn't suggest that Alexander didn't have that much interest in sex at all, although this is sometimes said by later sources. I have heard that about him, actually. People just kind of go, nah, I wasn't interested in it. I don't think that's the case. I mean, there's some great stories about that, but that's one line of thought as to why his sex life is no way near as promiscuous as his father, King Philip. Slutty. <laughs> there we go. He's <laughs> a messy bitch, that <laughs> Philip, honestly. So much more relaxed. There we go. I love it. I'm loving this so much, Kate. But what is so interesting is that what is emphasised in the sources again and again is this idea of his sexual sophrisonate, his sexual moderation that we see. <laughs> Okay. But we do, nevertheless, we have several examples surviving from the many sources that survived by Alexander the Great of him with several different sexual partners. But before he really assumes the throne, before he begins his Persian conquest, goes east and so on and so forth, is around a courtesan called Calixena, sometimes called Cambaspe, Pancaste, sometimes the name differs in some of the sources. I think it's all really focused around one Thessalian woman, okay. a Thessalian courtesan called Calixena, who was renowned as one of the most beautiful women in the Greek world at the time. Wow. And the story around this, it preserved in a few of the sources, take it with a pinch of salt, okay. but it's a great story nonetheless. And I think regardless, we can presume that Calixena was an actual person who was renowned at the time. But the story goes that Philip and Olympias, you know, the mum and dad of Alexander the Great, are worried that Alexander's not interested in sex, sex with a woman at least. So basically they hire Calixena and they basically beg her to have sex with Alexander. And then apparently in one source, Olympias begs Alexander, please have sex with Calixena, please. You're, well, you're in your late teens now. You must be 18, 19, something like that. Well, probably younger, to be honest. But I, she's begging Alexander to have sex with Calixena. And apparently wow. Alexander does so reluctantly. And for the sources that do have this story, it's like Alexander loses his virginity to this Thessalian courtesan, Calixena. But it is very interesting because that's really the only story we have of Alexander having a female lover before he ascends the throne, before he begins his Persian conquest. Because, you know, it's so interesting with him that we have that dearth of stories relating to it. And following that, I mean, he stays a bachelor for most of his life following that. But that's not to say he doesn't have any sexual escapades, shall we say. 
I mean, he was a busy boy, wasn't he? He was focused. He was global domination will deplete your time for pursuing lovers, I suppose. But that is an interesting story that keeps coming up about him was just that he was just no, no, not, not that fussed. Well, exactly. It's so interesting. And I think there are sometimes political reasons why he certainly, for instance, he doesn't marry or have sex with certain Persian princesses earlier on his reign than he perhaps could have done and why he does that later, all to do with his relationship with the Macedonian soldiers, his dependence on the Macedonian soldiers. Yeah. But there are other cases where it is, you know, it is just really interesting. I mean, if we go back to Alexander before he begins his conquest of the Persian Empire, there are two of his senior adjutants, much older than he is, like, close allies of his father, Philip II, these two figures called Parmenion and Antipater. And, you know, they are senior, they are veteran, they know the scene of the Macedonian royal family of court politics, as does Alexander. But they basically say, Alexander, before you begin this conquest of the Persian Empire, you know, this is pretty dangerous stuff, particularly with your leadership style, where you're going to be leading from the front in all of your battles. You should probably, you know, maybe just just hold back for a few years, marry, have an heir, make sure you have an heir, and then you can go wild. Mm. Then let's go and campaign and conquer the Persian Empire. Alexander has none of that. He's just like, no, I'm going straight away and to conquer the Persian Empire. So you do see these stories by these, I hate to say perhaps like more conservative, lower sea members of the Macedonian elites talking to him again and again and again, basically advising Alexander to have sex more, basically, mm. following in the footsteps of Philip and Olympias. But Alexander is always very much determined to do what he wants to do. And he's engrossed by this desire to surpass his Homeric heroes of old from the Iliad and these demigods like Heracles. I'll be back with Tristan after this short break. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think, and this this isn't a fair question, we're going to ask it anyway, do you think he was gay? This is like the thing that hangs over... Alexander the Great, like all the time, like, was he bisexual? Was he asexual? Was he this? And I know we can never actually get a proper answer to that, but for your money, what was going on? It's very difficult to say, obviously, this dichotomy that we have between homosexual and heterosexual today didn't exist in the ancient Greek world and the tradition. Didn't exist. Very important to know. Yes. Which is good to know, first off, you know, can I clear my back on that? But it's very interesting. If we put a modern label on it today, he was almost certainly bisexual Mm. in the fact that we know that he had female lovers and we know that he had at least one male lover in the figure okay. of Bagoas, this eunuch. And once again, I think personally, more likely than not, that he and Hephaestion, his closest friend, also had a sexual relationship as mm-hmm. well. Like mm-hmm. how long that lasted and that endured as a sexual relationship, it was evidently stronger than that. They were just really close friends. Anyway, we can never know how long it lasted. But I think with Hephaestion, I absolutely do. So I think the evidence from the literature go and really have his literature for this stuff, is there that he, you know, he liked men, he liked women too. Mm. That's fascinating, isn't it? And, and we've got to, like, I suppose, remember that when we talk about famous people or extraordinary people throughout history, we almost want them to have something interesting, some sexual quirk about them. It's, it's really boring if it's just like, no, he just, he loved his wife and they had sex in the missionary position once a week with the lights out. Like, we want there to be something, you know, like... <laughs> We want them to have like a fleet of oh, courtesans. Oh, Kate, trust me. Like, especially <laughs> with Alexander. We haven't got to the Amazon story yet. This amazing... Oh, God, right. Okay, okay. Get to the Amazon story. Come on, come on. Because it's a wonderful story. It is preserved actually in a couple of our Alexander historians like Quintus Curtius, Rufus. Uh, we'll sort of the fact from the fiction later, but let's just tell the story as it is first of all, because it is great. So this is a few years into Alexander's campaigns, conquest against the Persian Empire. He's defeated the Persian king Darius III at a couple of set battles. In fact, Darius III has just been murdered by one of his subordinates. That's all going on, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a brilliant, brutal, horrific, but extraordinary story in so many different parts. But we're focusing on this part today, aren't we? So I want to, let's delve into it. (laughs) So Alexander at this time, he is just southeast of what is now the Caspian Sea in this region called Hyrcania. And apparently, in a couple of our sources, it is then that the queen of the Amazons, a woman called Thalestris, approaches the camp of Alexander and requests an audience of Alexander. And she's got the classic Amazon look. She's got one of her breasts cauterized. She's got spears. She's riding on horseback. The breast cauterized so she can bring the drawstring of her bow back to fire fine. Fuck, love. Just a sports crab. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, so she's cut her boob off. That would make an impression. Well, yeah. And so she approaches Alexander and her kingdom supposedly lies in the area from the sources, it says ancient Colchis, so really modern day Georgia between the Black Sea 
and the Caspian Sea just below the Caucasus. And she approaches Alexander and it basically goes along the lines of, Alexander, you're evidently the greatest man in the world from what you've done. I'm evidently the greatest woman in the world. We should have sex. And because of that, from our, you know, our offspring, who, whatever child we have, will evidently be like a superhuman. Wow. Will be like the greatest child that has ever been. And in a couple of the sources, Alexander's a bit, he kind of says, okay, but he doesn't seem, you know, that interested. In other ones, he's very excited and he's very keen to do it. And um, they have sex for 13 days. Think of the cystitis. That's ridiculous. No one's having sex for 13 days. I know it's a fantastic story that is preserved in a couple of sort of segments like Quintus Curtius Rufus from the time which highlight this meeting of Alexander the Great with this Amazonian queen after 13 days Thalestria she feels like they've probably conceived by then so she heads back to her kingdom she parts ways with Alexander Alexander supposedly offers you know she's come along you know come stay with us for a bit longer come and campaign with us she says nope nope I'm off I'm done I'm done if it's a daughter, she stays with me in the kingdom of the Amazons, you know, in the queendom of the Amazons. If it's a son, I will send the son to you and he will rejoin you in your camp, you know, later on during the campaigns. And we never hear anything else about the story whatsoever. But it's a fascinating, fantastical story that becomes associated with Alexander so quickly, really quickly, in fact, because this is where you have to sort the fact from the fiction. Almost certainly this is fictitious. This is a fantastical story, but it's applied on Alexander's story almost immediately, because one of Alexander's adjutants is a man called Lysimachus. He would go on later to become the king of a kingdom in modern-day Bulgaria, around the region of ancient Thrace. And according to, in one of the sources, it mentions how, basically, Lysimachus, his court historian, is retelling this story of Alexander meeting the Amazonian queen. And Lysimachus supposedly jokes when he hears this story, where was I at this point? Because he was campaigning with Alexander. So he kind of takes the piss out of it because, you know, they all kind of know that this is absolute nonsense and this has been fabricated. But it is an amazing story that is quickly added to Alexander's sex life story. There's a similar, similar-ish story in the Epic of Gilgamesh, one a really early one, that the harlot Shamhat was sent to tame the wild man Inkadu and they had sex for seven days and seven nights. And then when they'd finished... He was no longer wild and he couldn't talk to animals anymore. Right. How interesting. So I don't know, like, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone having sex for this prolonged amount of time unless you've got snacks <laughs> and you're well hydrated. Mind you, he's the king, isn't he? He probably had snacks just brought in. <laughs> but maybe, like, the idea of, like, epic lovemaking feats with these really impressive people. Maybe it crops up in other traditions. Well, I wonder. I mean, I've never heard that epic of Gilgamesh story. You know, that's seven days and this is 13 days. I think the 13 days part of it is the most extraordinary part of this fantastical story in itself. But as soon as Alexander dies, he becomes this divine figure. Mm. You know, his funeral carriage is shaped as a mini temple on wheels. Wow. You know, he wants to be buried, supposedly, at the Oracle of Zeus, who he was now saying was his father, you know, declared the son of Zeus and so on and so forth. So, you know, this idea, you know, this extraordinary idea may well be linked to these divine stories attached to Alexander, which just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mentioned, you know, the submarine and the flying contraption much later on medieval times, you know, they just evolve and evolve and evolve over the centuries. So actually with the whole story of Alexander, it is sometimes very difficult to sort fact from fiction because so much of it 
is mythologized. I don't think anyone can have sex for 13 days. I'm just going to put that out there. Tantra mantra. There's no one's having sex for 13 days. <laughs> but you're going to have to tell me about Bogoeth. Okay. Because he's a really interesting figure. And whether or not Amazons with cauterized boobs were real, he seems to be real, doesn't he, Bogoeth? He does. And it's interesting because he is explicitly mentioned as a lover of Alexander. This is something that Faisal is never mentioned explicitly in the sources as a lover of Alexander. He's always just known as a, a close friend. But I think we can presume that Faisal was a lover when you look at all the evidence. I would put my money on that. I think that they were in love. It's an interesting story with Bogoes because actually we don't hear that much about him. We know a little bit from the Greek sources. I mean, I don't know if the Persian version says more about him, but we know that he was a eunuch of King Darius III, the great king of Persia, and that he was also a lover of King Darius III, which also, if we could believe the Greek sources on this, suggests something about the Persian royal king as well, this idea of a younger male lover also there with King Darius III. It's an interesting story where Begoas falls into Alexander's hands. He gets a lot of political influence at court. There's one case where Begoas is instrumental in pleading the case of a captured Persian official, governor called Nabazanes, who had been involved I think he was involved actually in the murder of Darius III, or he betrayed Darius III. So Alexander doesn't think very highly of him, but he is spared because of the intervention of Begoas. So Begoas was the lover of Darius III, becomes the lover of Alexander the Great. We hear of a couple of stories where he is involved, which is, for instance, the sparing of this Persian official. And we hear later, apparently as well, at a ceremony of some kind, apparently the Macedonian soldiers, they see Alexander with Begoas, and they call out in celebration that Alexander give Begoas a kiss, which he does. But we don't hear that much. Ooh, with tongues? I'm afraid I don't have that information to hand. Alexander's several wives as well. He has a couple of, not mistresses, but female lovers, women he has sex with who he doesn't marry. Barsine's a fascinating example. They have an illegitimate childhood they call Heracles. But Heracles doesn't fare well after Alexander's death. Neither does Barsine. He marries a few times, all diplomatically, it seems. Roxana in the Far East, then two Persian princesses, neither of whom survived long after Alexander's death either. How many people did he marry? He only marries three. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, compared to his father, Philip II, <laughs> that's nothing. That's less than half. But he marries three. And they're all diplomatic. They're all with Asian elites, noble women or princesses. Right. Two daughters of Darius one daughter of a prominent chieftain in what is modern-day Uzbekistan to kind of try and pacify that area. So it's a fascinating example because you have those marriages which are evidently diplomatic. There is only one child conceived from the marriages before he dies, which is the infant who is also called Alexander, Alexander IV, who, like Philip Herodias, following Alexander's death, is very much controlled by the successors, by the generals who come to the fore following Alexander's death. So it's a fascinating example of that. But Roxana, you know, her story following Alexander's death, she grows up in Monday Uzbekistan. She goes back to Babylon. She's involved in the murder of her rival brides, potentially, almost certainly, to make sure that her son becomes a successor. That's ruthless, isn't it? It's the Macedonian Game of Thrones. That's Bridezilla. It was kind of Bridezilla in that case. But, you know, she, compared to what the others do following Alexander's death, the horrific stuff that they got up to with the murders of people. Is it like an absolute bun fight, just that everyone loses their shit completely? Everyone loses their shit. Everyone's trying to gain some authority, some power, some legitimacy in this really unstable new post-Alexander world. And, you know, Alexander the Great's death is like one of the most seismic events that's ever happened in the ancient world when it happens because people have no clue what's going to happen next, really. And then with Alexander's empire, 
former brothers in arms become the most hated of enemies. You have you know some horrific murders taking place of members of Alexander's family. Some of his wives, his mother Olympias is later murdered, but she's also involved in the murder of other figures too. You have his half-sister who's murdered. You have his full sister who's murdered. Only one sister of Alexander the Great survives, a half-sister called Thessalonike. You have Alexander's child killed. You have his illegitimate child, Heracles, also killed. Like It is the generals who take power following Alexander's death. They ultimately go as far as killing Alexander's successors, his family members, Holy fuck. to ensure that they retain power. It is horrific, yeah. I suppose it's because Alexander, well, you know, it's much better than me, but Alexander the Great, like, he'd done something that had never been done before. He conquered what was, at the time, the known world, and then he ups and dies at 32, and it's like, well, now what the fuck do we do? Well, I mean, that's the thing. And it's so interesting because because he marries late, arguably late in his reign and you know the only legitimate child from his wife that he has is unborn at the time that he dies there's no clear successor there's no clear heir that results in a lot of turmoil straight away but it's kind of in a way it's alexander's own fault for not you know the advice of his old guard before he left to campaign against the persian empire marry have an heir before you go sort your shit out even though there's never any settled succession in macedonian politics royal family at that time Mm. that would have at least helped to some regard potentially but he marries late for several reasons once again we always get this idea of sexual moderation that he was just so obsessed with being better than his heroic semi-mythical idols and heracles and the like that he was obsessed with that and less focused on what if he died what would happen next and ultimately that results in the chaos that engulfs his empire almost immediately following his death i always feel sorry for there must be people in these families who are like They've no interest in this. They don't want to be king or queen or whatever it is. They just want to live in their house and eat sandwiches and just do a bit of gardening. But just because they are part of this, they're always at risk. And they might want nothing to do with it at all. And there's just some guard somewhere plotting that because you're Alexander's third cousin twice removed, who once had sex with one of his mates, that you are now a target. Yeah, because you could be used as a figurehead by a rival claimant to whoever I am in control of Macedonia or whatever, and they could use you to try and garner support amongst the populace who, you know, love Alexander or whatever, and then you could topple me. So I see you potentially as a threat. Absolutely brutal. Alexander saw rivals to him, like his cousin Amintas, as soon as he comes to the throne, gets rid of him. Olympias sees, it's almost certainly Olympias involved in it, the murders Philip's last wife, Cleopatra, and her infant daughter... Even her infant daughter is not spared, which really does seem pretty brutal and over the top, but they are removed as well. Because there's this idea, and I think actually it's very true for the female relatives of Alexander's family, particularly following Alexander's death, where if they don't act first, they are going to be used by these generals trying to seek power post-Alexander the Great. Because one of the key ways to kind of legitimise yourself as a ruler would be by marrying into the family of Alexander the Great, which several do try to do. So you see many cases like Kanane, this warrior Amazon figure, gathers an army. She's half Illyrian. She's very much a bellicose, an incredible warrior princess, really respected amongst Macedonian soldiers. She gathers an army to try and put her teenage daughter on the Macedonian throne to secure herself and her daughter in this unstable post-Alexander world by marrying her to the new king, Philip Aradeus III. So she takes actions into her own hands before someone thinks, I should marry Kanane or whoever. God, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. So it's very much, it's 
for women in particular, Olympias and Cleopatra do this as well following Alexander's death. They form an extraordinary mother-daughter team. They try to attach themselves to a particular general or to a king before they are used. Some people would always kind of portray this, and I think it's completely wrong, I think. Well, I think it's wrong to an extent that, you know, all these women are, they're just power hungry. They just want to be the voices behind the thrones, the real influence. Mm. It's all to do with safety and security in this unstable time. Because if they didn't act, they were going to be used by someone else. Yeah, or bumped off. Or bumped off, exactly. So um, Alexander's sex life, and then the successes of sex life as well when it comes to Alexander's family members, is it, it's really interesting. I know we've only just scratched the surface, but uh, I hope you've got an idea of the ex- complete turmoil, Kate, that there is. That is, I mean, you know, I thought that things got messy with Tinder or <laughs> something, but this is, like, this is just a whole other level of chaos. My final question, just because I want to know now, what happened to Bogoas and Hephaestion? Like the ones that Alexander probably did love. Did they get out of this all right? Did they manage to retire somewhere? Nice retirement home for eunuchs. So I can answer the Hephaestion question, absolutely. The Bogoas question, someone probably told me that there is a source which mentions what happens to Bogoas, but from my memory, I do not know what happens to Bogoas. He kind of fades out of existence, really, from my knowledge. With Hephaestion, it's much clearer because Hephaestion dies before Alexander the Great. And one of the great kind of um, cases that is kind of used to potentially suggest, you know, well, it evidently shows that they were very, very close friends. Some have used it to emphasise how mm-hmm. Alexander was also a lover of their lovers, is the fact that when Hephaestion dies in Ekbatana, which is like northern Iran today, south of the Caucasus Mountains, northwest Iran, when he dies in 324 BC, the level of grief by Alexander is unprecedented it's crazy like he basically goes mad like he grieves for so long about the death of Hephaestion and there are some people who when talking about the death of Alexander the Great there are several different parts that cause Alexander's death that aren't poison it's definitely not poison so it might be his excessive drinking it might be the war wounds that he suffered he suffered several severe war wounds over the course of his campaign but another factor in his early death may well have been this excessive grief may well have been grief for the loss of Hephaestion that is one potential suggestion surrounding a potential cause of Alexander the Great's death broken heart he constructs this massive funeral pyre for Hephaestion in Ecbatana and I know that also in one of the sources when Following Alexander's death, they find these last plans of Alexander where he had these, fantastical is the wrong word, but extra extraordinary ideas for the future, like creating a road that linked the eastern Mediterranean to the pillars of Hercules, to the Straits of Gibraltar, all these port towns, you know, creating a massive 1,000 plus ship fleet in the eastern Mediterranean, creating a tomb for his father, Philip II, bigger than the largest building of the time, the Great the Pyramids of Giza. But another thing supposedly was to create a great funeral monument for Hephaestion as well, which would have cost so much money. So we know how Hephaestion dies. He dies before Alexander the Great of illness, if I remember correctly, in 324 BC. And what we see from that, for result from that, is this incredible grief mm. from Alexander. So you can say without doubt, that they were the closest of friends. Oh, they were very, very close. And I think it's, yeah, as you say, I think it's more than likely that, if not for all the time, at least for a part of their time, that they were lovers too. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Alexander. Tristan, you've been amazing to talk to today. I could have kept going at this for hours and hours. We can, next time, at the History Hit, you know, get together. We're just going to keep <laughs> just talking. Keep, we'll just have Alexander, the messy bitch, part two. Oh, my days. And then we can keep going. 
if people want to know more about you and they should where can they find you well you can find me i am on social media i do social media once in a while on twitter and instagram but of course the main thing you can find me on is as the host of the ancients podcast in the history hit stable alongside the shining lights that are betwixt the sheets and the several others that we have there so and you can listen we do two episodes a week released our mission is just to share these incredible stories from ancient history with as many people as possible and long may that continue long may it continue tristan thank you so much you've been an absolute legend kate absolute pleasure and thank you Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Tristan for joining me. And if you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.